Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Okay, so the book of Genesis. What does Genesis mean? Beginning. It's a fitting title for the first book in uh, the Bible, right? Which is the book that captures uh, the beginning, the beginning of uh, the beginning of time. Really, even before time existed, before time was a thing. Um, we're not going to get very far in the book tonight, as you might expect, as we consider much of an introduction to it. We'll touch on a handful of different passages, and and really, we'll get as far as you ready? Genesis one, verse one. I'm going to read it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, certainly we'll touch on a handful of other passages, and come next week we'll probably make our way through the bulk of of all of chapter 1, even into chapter 2, as we consider the full creation account. But this first verse is incredibly important. Though it's just a matter of a few words, there is so much that is captured in the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you think for a moment about some of life's biggest questions, the things that people ask themselves when they, have the, when they get to a place where they can begin to, to ponder and, and to consider different things, and, and really that happens at an early age. In fact, I'm just now thinking of a conversation I had last night with uh, my sister-in-law regarding our little niece, Claire, and the fact that um, she has so many questions that oftentimes, especially when I think she's probably supposed to be having a nap, uh, she'll come downstairs and declare to her mother, I just have so many questions, Mom. So many questions and things she wants to have answered. There's a curiosity that's built into us uh, from the very beginning. It's a wonderful thing that causes us to, to look out at creation, to look out at the world, and to, and to see things and contemplate them. And, and of course, for believers, we should consider the Word of God uh, that source for the answer to all of our questions. But people are asking these questions on a regular basis, like, why are we here? Why are we here on this earth? Or, what is the meaning of life? That's one that has often been considered. Or, uh, stated somewhat differently in the more philosophical category, why is there something versus nothing is a question that has been posed even in my own philosophy classes. Or, uh, as we begin to look at the fact that there is something out there, well, how did it get there? How did we get there? Again, these are things that many people ask themselves even from an early age. And the fact is, the answers to those questions, though many people continue to ponder them as if it can't be known, the answer to those questions is found within the Word of God, but not only within the Word of God, but also specifically in the book of Genesis. That's what we find in this text, in this book. It all begins here in the book of beginnings. Genesis is the book of beginnings. From a Hebrew, uh, in terms of the Hebrew here, that's really what it means. It's the Hebrew term Bereshith. And it means uh, beginnings. And the reason we get the term Genesis or the title Genesis from this is it's the Greek translation of the word toledoth, which we find in Genesis in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth 
when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. There in the beginning of that verse, in verse 4 of chapter 2, this is the history. Now some of your Bibles may say history. Others may have a different word in there. That word literally means uh, genealogy. And so uh, the Greek translation then of that word is Genesis. And so Genesis could also be translated genealogy. All of those different things telling us that this is about the beginning of time. This is about the beginning of man. This is about the history of the world. And for Genesis, in terms of, well, who, who wrote it, who, who penned it, who recorded these things, the authorship is most commonly attributed to Moses. Moses, of course, being the author, the considered author of the first five books of the Bible that we know as the Pentateuch. And uh, for much of, of history, especially biblical history, Israelite history, that was widely accepted. It was rarely ever contested that Moses was the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It wasn't until more recently that that was uh, contested. And there has been a lot of study that has gone into looking at each of those five books, uh, the way in which they're written, some of the similarities, some of the differences, uh, and suggestions have been made that maybe it was others who were responsible for penning the books, uh, namely Ezra is another one who's often considered as a possible author for the book of Genesis. I don't think we need to get caught up much in that. I, I, think, I don't think it's a stretch for us to assume that Moses uh, given his uh, position, given his role, given his experience and his education in Egypt, given probably of most importance his relationship with God, uh, the opportunity that he had to converse with God the way that he did, uh, it certainly seems to me like this could very well be Moses' work under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But here we have this book that's the book of beginnings, again attributed to Moses, and it's this book that really gives us our origins. It's a big deal these days. We have different sites out there, uh, things like, uh, and I know this one's a little different, uh, but 23andMe, I think, is one that has sort of this, you can, you can have your DNA tested, and it's going to give you information about who you are and maybe uh, aspects of where you came from and some of your own tendencies and uh, just different things about you and and um, what makes you you. And of course, then there's uh, Ancestry.com and I think there's multiple others at this point that people have had a lot of fun tracing their genealogy, trying to figure out where did my family come from? And there's interest in that. Many of us want to know where did we come from? Uh, where has where has our family been? We want to learn things about ourselves. And Genesis is a book that does that for all mankind. Yet it's a book that has been, as I've mentioned already, under attack for decades, even longer. And because of that, what's begun to happen, even as these attacks have started to make their way into the church, because outside of the church, I can understand that, for an unbelieving world uh, to reject the, the belief and the truth that God created the earth and everything in it, I, I would expect that. I don't expect unsaved people to act like they're saved. I don't expect people who reject the idea of God to believe in uh, a creation account. But these criticisms have even begun to make their way into the church, sadly, and what's resulted from that is much of the liberal theology that we see within the church today. What's happening is the equivalent, really, of if I went to any one of your homes, and uh, depending on the type of construction that your house is, uh, that I made my way into the foundation and I began to just tear it apart. 
whether your house was built on, on brick pillars and you have that crawl space like many of the houses are in this area, and I just slowly started to take each one of them out, eventually we would expect that the house would fall. Or if you have a concrete foundation, whatever the case may be, you get the picture there. If I began to, to, to destroy the foundation, at some point we would expect the house as a whole to begin to fall. Genesis is the foundation for the Bible. It's the foundation for the church. Many might say, well, isn't the gospel that? Isn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yeah, listen, the truth of the gospel is an incredibly important truth for us as believers today. But if you really think about it, it goes back to the, the beginning. It goes back to that point when in the beginning God created. And the fact is, if we begin to reject this, there are aspects of even the gospel that are going to begin to be compromised. Or there's going to be a willingness or an acceptance on the part of many to, when criticisms come along elsewhere in Scripture, to begin to accept those things or to begin to uh, let go of a, of a strong stance on, on sound doctrine. And we've seen many different things begin to creep into the church today that maybe people didn't directly tie to Genesis, but I absolutely believe it's because it started there. Because they said, well, if Genesis isn't real, if I don't believe Genesis, if I think it's just, if it's just myth, it's just folklore, then what stops you from treating the rest of Scripture as literal biblical truth? And so we should be excited about Genesis. We should look to Genesis as, as truth because it is. We should, we should want to get the answers to many of our questions from the book of Genesis and accept it as, in fact, our own genealogy, our own origin. Now, the first thing we see in Genesis, the very first thing we see in the Bible here, in the, in the very first chapter, in the first verse, in the first words of the Bible, we see that God is mentioned. This is his book. This is his word. And so the first thing that Genesis deals with is God. He is the main character of the story. He is there in the beginning. He's there throughout. He's there in the end. He is what the word of God is all about. But in addition to that, we see in Genesis the origins of man. We see the origins of the human family in Genesis. We see the origins of marriage of good and of evil, of sin and salvation. We see the origins of, of doctrines that we consider, like the justification of faith. In, in Genesis, in chapter 15, and verse 6, it says, Of Abraham, then Abram, and he believed in the Lord, and he, mean God, accounted it to him for righteousness. That's the doctrine of justification by faith right there. Because Abraham believed, he was accounted as righteous. I mean, that is a doctrinal truth about our own faith that when we believe in God, we are made righteous. And so when we, we see the origins of justification by faith. We see the origins of free will in Genesis, in chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. There is the doctrine of free will. That's choice. That was a bad choice that was made, but there it is in Genesis. And this thing that we often struggle with, this, this how, is, how does free will fit with God's election? We see the origin of God's election just a few verses later. In Genesis 3, verse 9, Then the Lord God 
called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Adam and Eve, now in their sin, hiding in the garden, God did not need to intervene. He didn't need to find them. He didn't need to seek them out. He did not need to do this. But in his grace, in his mercy, he called to them the same way that he calls to you, Christian. And so we see the origin of election. And we also see the origin of judgment as it comes then even later in that chapter in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. As it says in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and on you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And even in that, as I've mentioned already, we begin to see insight into salvation, the origins of salvation, as here, even as God is is issuing judgment, as he does through the end of that chapter, he's also here mentioning that there's one who will come, who shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, speaking of Jesus, our Savior, who would come eventually to restore this relationship. There is so much that we find even within the first few chapters of Genesis. This is where it all begins, where the answers to life's questions are found. But you see throughout history, as many of you well know, the creation account has been disputed. Why? Why has the creation account been disputed? Now we could simply say, well, because people don't want to believe in God, but why don't they want to believe in God? You see, if the creation account is accepted, if, if someone accepts Genesis as a literal and true biblical account of creation, then two things become true. Two things. The first of which is everything that exists is under God's control. If what Genesis says is true, then everything that exists is under God's control. Secondly, God's law and his precepts are now brought to bear upon you, right? Meaning that what he says here now has implication for you. There are consequences for you as to whether or not you do what he says or you don't do what he says. And people don't like that, do they? People throughout history have not liked that. But of course... Not liking something is a, is a really good reason to reject it, right? I don't like this, therefore I don't believe it. See, that's the culture we live in, where people reject truth of eternal importance because it's inconvenient, uncomfortable, doesn't fit their preferences, because we live in a culture today that is in many respects just relative, where we've rejected any sense of moral absolute And it's kind of whatever you want goes. So what has man sought to do instead? If man rejects Genesis, if if we reject the fact that all of creation is under God's control and that his law has uh, bearing upon me, what have we exchanged that for? Man has really sought to free themselves from a biblical past. That's what culture, that's what society has sought to do, to free themselves from a biblical past. They've sought liberation, liberation from the bonds of religion. We saw a big move of this back in the 1960s. But what did they exchange 
this so-called bondage to religion for. In many people's eyes, it was, in fact, liberation. We are now free from the tyranny of religion. But if Genesis contains the origins of history, if Genesis contains the answer to many of life's questions, and questions that not just Christians are, are asking, but questions that really all of humanity is asking, seeking to understand, well, where then are people turning for their answers? What are they looking to for their answers? You might be thinking in your mind, evolution, right? That's one of the most common things we think about as, as something that stands in contrast to the Word of God and to the biblical creation account, evolution. And we'll consider evolution much more next week as we really dive into the, the actual days of creation and the different theories that have been proposed about creation, even, again, within the church. And so evolution is one of those things. New Age philosophy is one of those things. And it has come in many different forms, but it's ultimately the same thing. Uh, secular science. And I say secular science because the fact is God invented science. Science is not bad. Uh, I, I get really frustrated when uh, people who are uh, unbelievers, people who are opposed to Christianity, want to suggest that as Christians we just sort of reject any form of, of science. No, God invented science. You can look at the earth. You can study the earth. There are many scientists who are Christians. We need to be careful we don't say Christian scientists, right? That also gets confusing these days. But secular science, all of these different things, what is it telling them? What are these things telling those people? Well, it's giving them anti-Christ philosophies, even though they don't necessarily know it. R.C. Sproul, who himself is a theologian, recently uh, passed away. He writes this in an article titled, What is Man's Chief End? He writes this, Man in the 20th century has been busily engaged in a quest for dignity. It is a very earnest quest. The civil rights movement developed the cry, we are human beings, we are creatures of dignity, we want to be treated as beings of dignity, and so also have others sprawl rights. It's not just only the civil rights movement we've seen in the United States, but it's been a movement uh, on behalf of people groups all throughout the world over, over uh, all of history, really. Sproul goes on to write, but the existentialist, existentialism is really a... Uh, a philosophy which focuses on existence, meaning that man simply exists, and because man exists, uh, he is there for his own pleasure, uh, and that we get to kind of define life the way we want to define it. In other words, anything goes, you do what you want to do. The existentialist, Sproul writes, tells us that our roots are in nothingness, that our future is nothingness. And he asks, think, if your origins are in nothing and your destiny is in nothing, how can you possibly have any dignity now? What Sproul is pointing out there is how ludicrous it is for some of these new world philosophies, existential philosophies, uh, these beliefs that, that on one hand are saying uh, people deserve an aspect of dignity, they, they deserve to be uh, treated as if they have value, as if they have worth. Yet the very philosophy of life in which they are believing in denies any of that. He goes on to say, If our past history tells us that we have emerged from the slime, that we are only grown-up germs, 
What difference can it possibly make whether we are black germs or white germs, whether we're free or enslaved germs? Who cares? We can sing of the dignity of man, but unless that dignity is rooted substantially in that which has intrinsic value, all our songs of human rights and dignity are so much whistling in the dark. They are naive, simplistic, and credulous. And the existentialist understands that. He says you're playing games when you call yourselves creatures of dignity. If all you have is the present, there is no dignity, only nothingness. How much of this very philosophy have we heard play out when people say, live, you know, live for the day. Seize the day. You might die tomorrow. Who cares? Do what you want right now. Make, make the most out of, out of this life. You see, this is a big part of what our culture today, what science today, is telling people. This is what the world has been telling people now for decades. And many have bought into the lie, yet in the midst of all of that, they find themselves increasingly desperate for meaning and for purpose. Yet depression and anxiety and suicide and substance abuse and, and human trafficking and abortion and, and on and on and on and all the atrocities we see in our culture today are only increasing. Yet, people, and I don't mean to minimize this and I'll expound for a moment, yet people in our culture today, even, even this very day, are marching and they're protesting for the value of life, but the question must be asked, on what grounds? On what grounds? Why? We've talked often over the last uh, few months about much of the racial tensions that we've been seeing in our culture. And our study of Genesis is not necessarily intended to tackle that and that alone. But rest assured, as we consider the book of beginnings, the book of origins, we are absolutely going to deal with that and many other topics that we're facing today. Kind of interesting, right? But the answers, as I've said, are here. And so we've been dealing with this aspect of racial inequality and racism and, and racial reconciliation and all these different things, which, by the way, I absolutely believe, and hopefully that's come through multiple times over the last few months, is important for us to do, especially as the church. But it's mind-boggling to me that organizations out there, particularly one that, that has coined the phrase Black Lives Matter, which is, an absolute, which is a phrase that I can say, I, I can stand for that phrase, absolutely. But yet, the organization themselves has adopted a philosophy of life and bought into the ideas of evolution, which, then, which in their own very nature are racist and devalue life. Yet they're attempting to try and place value on life, and we should be stepping, sitting back here and going, wait, this isn't going to work. Because you can't ascribe dignity and worth and value to a life when in every other way, it, shape, and form, you, you deny it. But yet this is what the world continues to tell people, and we wonder why people are, are, are sort of uh, finding themselves at a, at a loss and increasingly in despair, though there's these efforts being made. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But yet that's what our culture is doing. And it's the church that needs to step in and say, there is value and worth in every life. There's value and worth in the case of our culture today in black lives. There's inherent dignity, value, and worth. And it comes from God and the Word of God. But many people today do not accept the biblical view of creation. And they believe in things like evolution. I made a claim just a moment ago in, 
it may seem sound odd to some people, especially if someone watches later on online and out of curiosity, that I would say something like the idea of evolution at its core is racist. When we, or when someone rather believes in evolution, they oftentimes consider one individual somewhat their, their hero, the father of evolution. We know him to be Charles Darwin, right? Charles Darwin, as their hero, writes this in his book, The Descent of Man. Two quotes that I find quite interesting, one of which says, At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. That's Charles Darwin. He goes on to say, I could show fight unnatural selection, having done and doing more for the progress of civilization than you seem inclined to admit. Remember what risk the nations of Europe ran not so many centuries ago of being overwhelmed by the Turks and how ridiculous such an idea now is. The more civilized so-called Caucasian races have beaten the Turkish hollow in the struggle for existence. Looking to the world at no very distant date, what an endless number of the lower races will have been eliminated by the higher civilized races throughout the world. Once again, Charles Darwin. Now, and this isn't to be insightful by any stretch of the imagination, but it's an interesting thing that I think we ought to consider. And it's this. How can those pushing for change and wanting to see life valued and respected expect to accomplish such a cause without a biblical worldview? Rather, with a worldview through the lens of evolution. Whether it's the Black Lives Matter organization, or any other organization right now that is sort of jumping on these trains and trying to push for uh, various change in our culture today, that in some, res- in, in, in some cases are declaring something that is absolutely true and worthy of support, but meanwhile is burning Bibles, pursuing a radical sexual agenda, and aligning with a view that, as I've already alluded to, is racist at its core. That will fail that will fundamentally fail. It will implode in on itself. It's the Darwinian evolutionary thinking that motivated individuals like Adolf Hitler, who himself was an evolutionist and, of course, contributed to what we know as the Holocaust. And so here's one of the things that, again, I'm not, and it's not my intent to be insightful here, but, or inciting something, but has evolution and Darwinianism, uh, or Darwinism, I should say, has it made its way on the chopping block that is sort of the cancel culture of our day? I mean, it it doesn't take much to see that he and his philosophies are racist, right? So why aren't we seeing that torn down? And that's not an advocation for any... Listen, I'm not talking about anything else, okay? I'm not talking about statues. We're not going there. I'm talking about the desire on the part of people in our country today to say, hey, if it has this connection, it's got to be gone. Well, what about evolution? What about Darwin? Now, I mention all of that, again, not to just fire somebody up, but to really ask the question that we know the answer to. We're not going to see it rejected because to reject it, even in the name of racial reconciliation, as wonderful as that would be, to reject it and, and, to, and to begin to assign real value to life from a biblical perspective, as amazing as that would be would be for that individual to have to bring themselves back under biblical authority and under the control of a creator God. And for far too many of their so-called liberation from biblical oppression, to their own detriment, I might add, to them proves to be too costly. 
I'm mentioning all of these things, not that it's lost on you, in this introduction to Genesis. Because we have to understand, particularly our, in our day and age, that we are beginning to see now the decades of effects of not considering the truth of this word, of this book, and how it has absolutely eroded our culture and the foundation on which the church is sat upon. Uh, Aldous Huxley, some of you may know that name, a philosopher and an author, best known uh, for his book, A Brave New World. It was written in the late 30s. Some of you may know that. He said this of, a crea- of creation and of the meaning of life. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for that assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. You see, this has been been even since the early 1900s that people in this humanist philosophy have begun to suggest that there is no meaning because when there is no meaning and there is no God and there's no biblical account of creation, then I am free to do whatever it is that I want to do. And there you have moral relativism than anything goes philosophy that as we are seeing today eventually implodes in on itself. Now, I know that I don't need to convince you guys of that process or how that goes about happening, but isn't it amazing that so many people today will even drive around with this sort of Jesus fish on their car that sprouted little legs and indicates that they're, a, uh, they're all about Darwin, and, and, and they don't even pay attention to the fact that he wrote an entire book about the inferiority of races? Because people have bought into the lie, and they bought into the lie because it's convenient for them and allows them to do whatever they want. Now, go back a couple of weeks ago to Matthew chapter 5 in Salt and Light. Now, what did I challenge us as a body about truly being salt and light in our culture today? That Christianity is, yes, offensive, but can also be winsome when we stand for truth. That it's not always going to result in us getting a pat on the back, but rather stripes across the back. But for far too long, we've been unwilling in many cases, and that's just the general blanket statement. I'm not specifically saying any of you. But to not stand for truth and to allow these things to happen. And now we find ourselves seeing things happen in the world, in in our own country, where people are literally crying out, wanting so badly to know that they have value, that they have worth, and they have dignity. And the very thing that assigns them that worth is the Word of God yet it's not the church that's leading that charge. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we need to bring ourselves back to it. Because the wonderful thing, as I stated also a couple of Sundays ago, is that we serve a God of grace and mercy who is able to say, yes, you may have found yourselves here, but I'm a God who redeems. I'm a God who restores. I'm a God who reconciles. And the church who is called by my name will humble themselves and pray. I will heal their land. 
that if we bring ourselves back to the foundation of the word of God, to what it says and to say, we believe in this, we believe that this is truth and we will proclaim it and we will stand upon it and we will advocate for people and we will convey that people have worth and dignity and value and that it's rooted within the word of God, then I do think we can see some of this turn around. But we need to ask ourselves, is there any question why after decades of such philosophy filling the minds of our youth that we are now facing a crisis of what I would say is biblical proportions. James Boyce writes this, Unfortunately, secular man did not see at what price this ghost of liberty had been won. Free of the past, yes, and now of their future too. No wonder the contemporary man is empty, miserable, and frustrated. He is on the verge of a monumental breakdown. He gained freedom, so-called freedom, but at the loss of value, of meaning, and of true dignity. Yet in the Bible, we read this. In Genesis, in chapter 1, verse 26, through 2, verse 3, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and every over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. See, I absolutely believe that that is the account of how we were created. Made in the image of God. Blessed. That when God saw his creation, he said, it's good. Now, what of those who want to ascribe to a biblical worldview and credit God with at least some aspect of creation but just can't bring themselves to believe in Genesis? Chalking it up to myth and to folklore. Stated differently, saying, yes, I believe in God, but uh, I take more of a scientific approach to creation. I just can't get on board with what we read in Genesis. I need your guys' help for a moment. If somebody would look up for me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Who's got that? 2 Timothy 3, 16. Krista's got it. I need somebody else to look up for me. Psalm 136, 5 through 9. Who's got that? Mackenzie's got Psalm 136, 5 through 9. I need somebody to look up for me. Matthew 19, 3 through 6. Matthew 19, 3 through 6. Cody's got it. Mark 13, 19. Who's got Mark 13, 19? Okay, Rich has got that one. Krista, go ahead with your ready. 2 Timothy 3.16. Okay. You Greek scholars know what all means, right? You know it. Say it. It means all. All Scripture. I, I didn't pull out an extra book when I started reading Genesis, did I? I just turned to the front of Scripture. All Scripture. Now some, of course, would say, well, I know. I didn't say it wasn't beneficial, but it's just a, it's a, it's, you know, it's just a myth because God just likes to throw myths 
into the Word of God, right? Remember, even when parables were referenced, they weren't just myths, they weren't just stories. What were parables used for? To portray a factual truth, right? To communicate something, all right? That's 2 Timothy 3.16. Someone read for me Psalm. This is a psalmist, okay? Psalm 136, 5-9. The psalmist who's ascribing praise because what? Because God created. Because God created. How about Matthew 19, 3 through 6? So who was saying that there? Anybody know? Who was talking? Jesus. And what was Jesus referencing? Genesis. Jesus, let's just say it out loud, okay? Jesus was referencing Genesis. Would you like, do we need to debate it further? How about Mark 13, 19? Jesus again. Now he's referencing the tribulation there, but he's speaking in terms of God creating. Now, Again, people want to say, well, I think it's more of myth and, and folklore, and people like to cite in particular uh, the texts that we have that give us the Babylonian uh, epic of creation. Uh, it's really this sort of cosmology. And, and from different people groups, we have different stories of creation, which, by the way, the majority of them kind of coincide in terms of different events, but yet have very much a mythical uh, storyline to them, meaning uh, in the Babylonian account, and I can't remember the names of either of them, but there's basically these creatures, and one's in the sea, and one's on the land, and it gets divided, and this creature gets divided in half, and it's, it, it reads in terms of folklore, it reads in terms of, 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 of a myth. It doesn't read like the story of creation, that, does, that doesn't, it doesn't give figurative language there. It says, no, God created, and this is how he did it. The creation account in the Bible stands alone and it doesn't use mythical language. And as we just saw there, whether it's in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. Or whether it's in the accounts where Jesus himself references back to Genesis as the answer to the question to say, this is how creation began. And so then some people who are still struggling with this a little bit, they go, well, well why, why doesn't the Bible use then some scientific language in it? It's a little tough for me to get on board when it talks about God's face hovering over the deep, you know? And why doesn't God just go ahead then and describe to us how he created things? And this is actually a question that I've gotten, and it's a question that I've seen out there before. So you know what I'm going to do for us? If any of you have, have wondered about that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm gonna do something for us here. What is the earth made of? I think in terms of like... There was a big bomb that has this name. We learned how to split it. Atoms, okay? Listen to this, okay? As a result of work done by previous scientists on atomic models, scientists now have a good idea of what an atom looks like. This knowledge is important because it helps us to understand why materials have different properties and why some materials bond with others. Before we look at some useful concepts, we first need to understand what electrons, protons, and neutrons are. The electron is a very tiny particle. has a mass of nine... I don't even know how to say this. It sort of looks like 911, but there's a comma. Anybody good with this stuff? What's 9, 11? If we call the comma at times, it looks like it says the electron is a very tiny particle. has a mass of 9 times 11 times 10 to the negative 31 kilograms. The electron carries one unit of negative electron charge. For example, 1 to the 6 by 10 to the negative 19 times C. Unlike the electron, the nucleus can be broken up into smaller building blocks called protons and neutrons. Together, the protons and neutrons are called nucleons. The, the electron carries one unit of negative electric charge, 1 by 6 by 10 to the negative 19 by C. Uh, each proton carries one unit of positive electric charge, 1 by 6 by 10 by negative 19. Since we know that atoms are electronically neutral, we don't need to carry the extra charge. 
then the number of protons in an atom has to be the same as the number of electrons to balance out the positive and negative charges, zero. Should, should I go on? Is this edifying to you right now? But I think it would really, really be awesome if God, in order to meet my needs, in order to you know, appease my mind, would just go ahead and write Genesis from a scientific perspective, because clearly I can understand that really well. Right? Give me a break, people. Frederick Philby, in his book, Creation Revealed, writes this. What would be the best method for the creator to use for making a beginning to his book and establishing that the God of the Bible is also the God of creation in language simple enough for all men throughout all time to understand? The answer, Genesis 1. It's pride. It's, it's an unwillingness to bring ourselves under the authority of Scripture and, and under the authority of God and or Christians who want to say that they're under the authority of, of Scripture and under God, but they just don't want to be teased about it when they're out living their life. And so it's easier for us to just say, yeah, I can get on board with that whole evolution thing because I don't really want to tell anybody that I believe in Adam and Eve and a fruit. Why? Because 2020 is proving to, to, to just be this, this year where you understand all things in the world. Everything makes sense. You got it all figured out? Friends, listen, I'll tell you this again. I absolutely believe in a literal six-day creation as described in Genesis, and I have no reason to believe otherwise. I don't know what that was. And here's the thing. While it may not be an issue of salvation necessarily, a professing Christian who denies the literal interpretation of Genesis is on a slippery slope and will soon find themselves in the same spot as much of the rest of the unsaved world grasping for meaning and value when all along it was right there in the beginning of the Bible. And so we find ourselves at Genesis 1-1. Again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can you just for a moment try and consider the gravity of that verse and what it means? I would submit to you this evening that that verse right there is is, is one of, if not, perhaps the most important verse in all of Scripture. And that furthermore, if you can accept verse 1, then you'll likely have no issue with the rest of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the remainder of our time together tonight, we're not even going to consider the earth. That's going to come next week. Okay. In the beginning, God created. Now, some versions, uh, uh, some, some Bible translations uh, have this as uh, in the beginning of God's creating or when God began to create. Um, if that's your Bible, I'm not going to suggest that you just get rid of your Bible, but I'm going to ask you to, to write in what it should say. That in the beginning God created. Why? Because those translations right there, I think one, I, I, I don't even want to say, I, don't, I, don't, I can't recall exactly what translations um, say that. But, what, what, what happens when it says, in the beginning of God's creating, well, what does that suggest? That maybe there was something there over a longer period of time, but then God just started creating, right? Or when God began to create, again, that there may have been matter, that there may have been existence prior to God beginning to create, which uh, helps to accommodate really an old earth theory, right? So that now you can get on board with saying billions and billions of years, right? Which, by the way, every time secular scientists run into a new thing that just sort of puzzles them in creation, in creation like, well, how did this happen? They just add another billion years, right? Well, the earth must be another billion years older because that's the only way that could have happened or God could have made it. So <clears throat> note that because God was first, okay? There's nothing before God. God's is, God is set apart. He was first. He created what we say ex nihilo, out of nothing, okay? He created everything. 
John tells us that as well. There was, there's nothing in the world that was made without him. Now, it's this word bara, this is that word for creation, and it means that only God can create, right? That he created out of nothing. And though we fancy ourselves to be somewhat creative sometimes, that's just the grace of God. Because really, if we want to get technical about it, we're fabricators. Not like fabricating lies, but like we only are able to take things that already exist and make stuff out of it, which is pretty cool. It's evidence of God's design that we are made in his image, but he's the only one that can just make something from nothing. Which to the earlier philosophical question of why is there something versus nothing, that's a stupid question. Because what happens if you ask why is there nothing? Well, you answer yourself and now you've created something, right? I mean, if, if there's just nothing, there's nothing. I mean, that's, that's just that's one of those typical philosophy type questions that just makes your head hurt and you can't really come up with an answer to. Now, here's what this verse refutes for us, and I'll go through this quickly. I know we're running out of time. This small little verse that says, In the beginning, God created. This refutes for us several things. The first of which, atheism. Now, again, I know that some people reject this, but the fact is, for us, as we look to Scripture, we know that this refutes atheism. God exists and he created the universe. It refutes pantheism, which really says that God is in all things and all things are God. Uh, that, that's just, you can find God everywhere in the world. If you mean the fact that God is omnipresent and omniscient and all-powerful and he is everywhere, okay, I'm with you. If it's like, oh, he's, he's in this, you know, some people do that. Look, there's God in that, and there's God in this wood, you know, and that just start, that stuff starts to freak you out a little bit. And uh, no, because God is transcendent beyond his creation. He is the one who has created. He's not in all of his creation in that way. He's the one who created it. He's separate from it, okay? Uh, it refutes polytheism. There is one God, one God. That's very much unique to uh, to the nation Israel, and to uh, Christianity. Now, the term for God here, because some people want to look at this and say, well, the term for God is Elohim, which is plural, which is really awesome, because what that means then is in creation, we see that that says, then God said, let us make man in our image. We get insight there into the Trinity, the fact that, that there's something plural about God here, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet it's used in the singular. And for those English fanatics out there, we know that doesn't work. Uh, but this is the Bible, okay? This is God. He is able to speak from a place of plurality, but as one. And of course, 1 John 5, 7, I think, uh, declares that all are one, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, it refutes materialism, which says that nothing exists except for matter, okay? That, that this is just all, it, nothing exists other than matter in this world. Again, very philosophical, but yet matter had a beginning. In the beginning, God created uh, it refutes dualism, which says that creation resulted from a good and an evil God. Uh, yet we see that God created alone and that it was declared good. It refutes humanism, which basically says it's all about us. That it's just about humans, that we're the ones, we're the focus. And, and uh, we see here that ultimately that idea pales when compared to the ultimate creator, God. It, it refutes, uh, of course, evolution, Right? And we don't need to go back to that. We've dealt with that already. What does it tell us about God? Not just what it refutes, but what does it tell us and give us insight to about God? Well, that God is self-existent. He's self-existent. He has no origin. As such, he is unknowable and answerable to no one. If he has no origin, 
we who only function in relation to that which is created cannot fully know him. And so that's what it means that he's unknowable because we would think, well, I thought I could know God. I thought I could have an intimate relationship with God, right? Well, listen, that's because of his grace and his mercy. That's because of his willingness to meet you right where you are. Not because of your infinite capacity, but in your finite capacity, God has revealed himself to you. And that should also cause us to just go, holy smokes, that a self-existent God who is ultimately unknowable, who has no origin, would be known to me. So he's self-existent, he's self-sufficient. It means he depends on no one and no thing, including you. I'll get back to that in a minute. He's self-existent, he's self-sufficient, he's eternal. He's eternal. He always has been, is currently, always will be. He's eternal. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's unchangeable. As an extension of his eternality, he is unchangeable. He's immutable. Um, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchangeable. Do you realize what that means in terms of your understanding of Scripture, what it says about God and the degree to which you can depend on that? He's unchangeable. And so, yes, God is love, and he's always going to be. You can depend on that because Unlike God, we are not self-sufficient. <laughs> we are dependent. We need Him. So go back to that idea of self-existent and self-sufficient. He does not need you. I don't say that to discourage you. Rather, it should be this incredible truth that makes the fact that He, he wants you so amazing. He doesn't need you. He doesn't depend on you. He doesn't require you. There is nothing about you that He needs. He just loves you and He wants you. You have value because of his grace, because of what he says about who you are. And so here as we begin to close, I want you to understand that about the message because I know I earlier especially dealt with a couple of kind of heavy things there, but that's what we have to understand. This world is crying out, and even within the church, and even many of you at various points of your life, even maybe this week, you're finding yourselves questioning your own value, your own worth, and your own dignity. The fact is, the word of God And because of that, Jesus Christ himself declares that you have value, that you have worth, that you have dignity, that he wants you and he wants to use you. And that's incredible grace. And we have a world out there that's crying out for it. And again, I can't say it enough, there's organizations that are leading the charge on that that are literally burning Bibles. The church needs to be the one to step up and to say, no, you do have value. Your life does matter. And here is why. Because God created you with a plan and with a purpose and with dignity. And it's heartbreaking that throughout history, so many people have been robbed of that. And for us as Christians, here's what we need to make sure that we don't do. And we all fall into this. I fall into this. That we sort of disregard or discount what God says about us. That we allow the enemy to speak lies, to whisper lies in our ears, and we say, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I can't do it, I'm not talented enough, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm all these different things, whatever it is that we just tell ourselves on a regular basis, and we need to begin to take seriously the fact, we need to look in the mirror in the morning and say, I'm not going to say those things about myself because it's not just me saying it about myself, it's me declaring it about something that God has created, something that's made in His image. And secondly, not only do, not only do we need to stop saying those things about God's creation, but we also need to stop just simply forgetting that He's that he loves us, that he made us, that he made us in his image. Those two seem like they might go hand in hand, but people aren't always necessarily super negative about themselves, but they may often just forget the fact that they're made in the image of God. God, Elohim, created 
and he created the heavens. And I'll end on this one. He created the heavens. We dealt with this last week on Wednesday. Uh, when we see there the, the heavens, plural, some people debate why we see this there, but I think, in my opinion, it, it goes back to the fact that there are th- there's three heavens. I mean, Paul himself spoke to that. We see the, the heavens, which is our atmosphere. We see the, the heavens, which are the galaxy and the galaxies, and we see the, the, the heavens, uh, and we'll see or read about um, the throne room of heaven. He created those. He created the heavens. And we often forget this, too, how significant it is. You know, when I, and I promise I'm wrapping up, when <laughs> When I was in my, my former life, in my corporate career, it came, it, there came a, a, a point in time where it was just entirely encompassing and overwhelming. and um, Like a really good movie that sort of sucks you in and sometimes you need to be like, you need to, take it, you need to turn the light on, take a step back and be like, whoa. Like I was getting really into that right now, but the fact is like this is real life. But that's only happened to me. Um, work would do that same thing. The company I worked for had a wonderful way of making you think that the entire world revolved around that. And it became your whole life. And yet you'd step out and go and interact in the community and you're like, nobody even, nobody even knows about any of this. <laughs> they don't even care. And I think sometimes we have to take a step back too. And not, not that we're not significant because we are. We're the glory of his creation. But sometimes to consider the fact that God created the heavens. You know what that means? You've heard of the Hubble telescope, right? The Hubble telescope revealed it at its, at its kind of extent, and, and they think that it's just a, the tip of the iceberg, if you will, but it revealed an estimated 100 billion galaxies. Ten years of taking these different photos, and, it, and, and scientists suggest that they, they think there's probably more like 200 billion galaxies, and as our uh, telescope technology improves, we'll be able to see more and more of them. Hundred, so right now, we're pretty confident at least in 100 billion galaxies, and we live in one of them. And the closest galaxy to us is the Andromeda galaxy. You guys know which one we live in? What one do we live in? Milky Way. So the next one over is the Andromeda galaxy. It's two and a half million light years away. That's the closest galaxy to us. If we could travel at the speed of light, that's two and a half million years to get there. That's just, that's, so now we've accounted for two of the 100 billion. I don't even know how all this stuff works. I don't even know how you can say that, oh yeah, we saw 100 billion of them out there. Like, what? There's got to be life out there somewhere, right? And that's the pursuit. The pursuit is like, well, we got to, the meaning of life. There's got to be life out there. Let's find it. And all the while, it's right here. All the while. And we'll, we'll, we will close on this, I promise. I mean, think about that. Think about all those galaxies out there and people searching and wanting to know and convincing themselves of everything that's out there. And yet the psalmist has said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It's all right here. It's all here. In the beginning, God, that's our origin. And it's what we'll consider as we make our way through this book. 
And I pray that throughout the evening, um, you've recognized the necessity of this book for us in the culture in which we live in today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pause again, and Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And that is a gross understatement, Lord, uh, but it's, it's, it's what we have in our language to express to you, Lord, the gratitude for what it is you've given us. Your word, Lord, which you exalt above your own name. You've given it to us, we hold it in our hands, Lord, and it has the answers to life's questions. It has the truth that we need. And uh, Lord, it also compels us to stand firmly upon it and to declare it to a lost and dying world. So help us, Lord, to do that with boldness. Do a work in our own hearts, Lord, regarding any of our own issues of faith. And uh, Lord, use us for your glory and help us, Lord, to uh, be a people that reach those who are desperate, Lord, to learn of their value and their worth and how it's rooted, Lord, ultimately in you. Father, we love you and praise you. I thank you for each of these here tonight. Lord, bless them. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.